Hey everyone, this is Audrey and I'm here with Michael on today's episode of Radically Normal. We'll be walking through chapter 2 of the book of 2 Corinthians. Hope you guys enjoy the discussion. So today was a first. It's the first time I've done any podcast prep in a dealership as I was getting my car fixed. But perhaps more interesting, uh, my co-host here, Andre, has now gotten the vaccine. So Andre, how was that? Oh, it's been it's been uh, it's been excellent. I didn't I didn't really feel too much pain, I, although some of my friends were sick for like a day or whatever. But um, my university like pretty much supplied it to like all the students um, who wanted it, and yeah, we got we got the good stuff. We got the <laughs> Pfizer vaccine, all as well. Got to get the second one before I head out of here and go on my work term. So pretty happy to have it done before heading off to where I'll be like around a bunch of people and all that. So pretty good. Sweet. I actually, uh, Dr. Moore, who we had on for season two was on the news the other day talking about how not only is the vaccine something Christians should support, but it's something we ought to thank God for that we have the technology for. And so I'd been thinking about that, but, uh, it's pretty cool that a lot of the universities are getting the vaccines out to uh, lots of people now. So yeah, it really stuck out to me when you, when we were having a discussion a few months back and, and you said it, you didn't really think that, you know, if, if there was anything, you know, bad or weird about it, you know, which we definitely don't think that pastors, universities, all that supporting it. Um, so, I mean, I think it, there's a lot of the, the potential benefits are way better than the, the potential risks. So, yeah, so hopefully Michael gets it too and, you know, we'll have a great summer and uh, we can have a nice little proposal party uh, that Michael's going to be. I'm uh, hosting it, but Andre's uh, the one proposing. Hosting. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. Michael will be the one proposing. Hopefully he has his uh, proposal or I guess engagement party. I don't really know what it's called. Hopefully he has that, um, whatever it's called, on a day that I can be home. And uh, he helps me out by playing around my schedule a little bit. <laughs> uh, we'll be planning around your schedule. And uh, yeah, still got to get on the planning for some of that stuff, but also have some stuff already planned. However, I probably shouldn't give away yeah, too much on the podcast. We can't give... Yeah, we can't give away uh, too many secrets in case if uh, your girlfriend's listening. But I don't really think she listens to too many of these episodes because she seems to be a very busy person. So maybe it won't be a big problem. Yeah, that's the hope. That's the hope. And so maybe maybe you can give a maybe you can give a spoiler on here. And if she knows what the spoiler is when the day comes, then we know that she listens to the episode. But if she doesn't know the spoiler, or maybe a code word, then <laughs> you know she doesn't listen. Well, if she sees me pull out a ring pop, she knows that's the time I'm proposing. <laughs> ring pop oh my gosh all right well let's jump into second corinthians i guess we're not gonna get a code word maybe the code word will be ring pop uh or at least it's not a ring pop or something like that hopefully michael actually has a diamond let's jump into second <laughs> corinthians and get into this uh letter of paul and uh hopefully we can uh, learn something from it today right so in the so the beginning of chapter two kind of follows up with the end of chapter one so if you haven't listened to the first episode uh going through the chapters of this book uh, I'd invite you to go and listen to that or uh, kind of pick up or remember where we left off. And so Paul's talking about his ministry and him visiting Corinth, and he makes up his mind not to make another painful visit to them in the first verse of chapter 2. And in verse 2, he says, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? So he's obviously referring to the fact that there's been another painful visit before, and that the greatest pain he can feel is not something that's directly concerned with himself. Obviously, he does feel pain in his in his soul, in his heart. 
but it's about the fact that they're not primarily walking with the gospel and in step with the Holy Spirit, and he feels joy when he and the church are in unity in submission to the gospel and what God has commanded them to do. That's really good, man. I think it goes really well too with what we're going to talk about uh, with like the middle section of this chapter about uh, you know just the church community and um, you know discipline in the church community. But uh, I hear it's really interesting how Paul, it seems potentially, you know, he has like kind of like this like weak spot towards uh, the church at Corinth. You know, he's deeply, um, you know, kind of uh, having like, you know, tears. Um, he's in this kind of, you know, mental pain, anguish, uh, affliction um, of the heart kind of situation. And, and he's really distraught by the fact of, of what the church in Corinth is doing. I mean, it's really interesting his his response to that and how that kind of um, relates kind of to our response when we see, uh, you know, people around us who don't know Jesus or have never, you know, been exposed to the gospel and things like that. If that's, you know, our response as well. Something something that we've been thinking about. Um, one of our buddies actually started this, you know, kind of YouTube channel type thing where he walks around and talks to people about um, whether they know the gospel or not. And it just really reminded me of, uh, you know, that continued thought of um, if we're, you know, really doing our part to, to spread the gospel and, and challenge, not challenge, but um, see if people, you know, what, what their thoughts are and, and, and where they are. And, you know, if they're actually seeking to grow closer to Christ, if they are Christians, and, and if not, if we're, you know, doing our, our part and, and sharing that with them. That's really good. And it's interesting what Paul's uh, doing and what he does later in 2 Corinthians, because in 2 Corinthians 10, He'll say we need to take thought or take every thought captive to make them obedient to Christ. And so most people take that as, oh, I'm having a thought that's lustful or angry. I need to take it captive and make it obedient to Christ. It is true that we need to take those thoughts captive to make them obedient to Christ. But Paul is actually talking about, if you read the verse after it, he's talking about taking worldly and false philosophies and religions and not necessarily... I mean, in some cases, yes, arguing like he argues with the Stoics and the Epicureans, I think, in Acts chapter 17 or around that part of Acts, but just taking other false ideas about God and the supernatural and about how the world operates and about the creation of the world and teaching the truth and speaking to the truth and thinking of the truth. And then so in verse four, it's interesting how he poses his pain. Usually when we pose our pain to somebody else, we can do it out of the sense of like, I'm a victim, look what you've done to me. He's not saying you've made me a victim. He's saying my my pain is evidence of the love I have for you. So he's not he's not a victim. He's one who's feeling love and that's why he feels anguish as well. And also, you know, last point about this before we go on to um, verse five and, and that section there is is again with verse four, how you pointed out, and, uh, you know, where his pain is coming from. And we know that, you know, from 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's calling them out on a lot of things. And we're going to find out that um, there's some people going around talking bad about Paul and, and about his ministry and casting doubt on that uh, to um, the church at Corinth. And, um, you know, Paul really, I think, is really like hitting on that, too, that, you know, he's saying, you know, I'm not, you know, calling you out and doing all these things because, you know, I, I don't love you or don't want you to have joy. We just want to have this joy together in Christ and, and doing what he what he wants us to do and what he wants them to do. So I think he's being like deeply personal and, and really opening up to them and, and showing them his sincerity and, um, you know, really that he's, he's coming from a place of love and, and not just trying to chastise them here. 
Yeah, it's really good. I don't know what the separation is in the Greek or where this comes from that ESV and other translations make the separation between verses 4 and 5 because there is a great continuity here. Uh, the next section in the ESV set, uh, is titled, Forgive the Sinner, but verse 5 is in deep continuity with verse 4. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. So Paul's saying, I've forgiven this person, but he's causing more pain to you than he is to me. He's writing to the, the church at Corinth, obviously, as we talked about in the last two episodes about 2 Corinthians. And so in verse 6, he talks about punishment. And so clearly there's been a church discipline inflicted on this person. Although, uh, as Andre and I had actually talked a little bit about before we began, we don't know who this person is. There are some theories that he might be the person from 1 Corinthians 5 who was sleeping with his dad's wife. Uh, And other people say we don't know who this person is at all. Some people say he could be an outsider coming in, but we really have no clue who this guy is, uh, at least according to all the sources that I've uh, checked out. But yeah, we don't know who this one is, but think about the shame and honor culture of Rome. Uh, to, to put this guy's name in the text would be to shame him beyond what Paul would be wanting to do. So that's why he goes unnamed. And then, you know, like Michael said, so someone has, has clearly done something, we don't know essentially who it is, but done something uh, that is an offense to, to uh, not just to Paul, but also to the church. Um, he's, he's really hitting at that, you know, by, you know, not following, um, not living a, a, a moral life and what he did and what deserved to be punished, um, that he's, he's really... Uh, cast an offense upon all of them, um, upon their community, their church community. But he's saying that, you know, now that, you know, he's been punished sufficiently, you know, you, they, uh, Paul included, as, as well as the church, need to forgive him and, and bring him back in um, to the church. And is kind of um, giving a little bit of, a, of an outline of even, you know, how we, we can approach these things uh, even today. Um, and Mike, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually have a lot of thoughts on that. So I have uh, learned a lot of this from a guy named Jonathan Lehman, who's in, uh, he writes a lot about the church and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church and how the church should practice. And he wrote a magnificent book, How the Nations Rage. And it's basically about rethinking uh, the the intersection of faith and politics uh, today. And so actually that might be part of the subtitle. I don't really remember, but it was a great book I read last year. And so uh, uh, he wrote a great piece for ninemarks.org about church discipline. And so this is a foreign concept to some people, you know, especially today, church discipline can sound unloving, but it's about the purification of the body. So 1 Corinthians 5 is a big text for this because like I just mentioned, there was this person who had been involved in very um, promiscuous, very sinful sexual acts. And Paul said that we need to, to basically remove him from the church. Uh, and we need to take the leaven, take the sin out because it infects the whole body. And so it's not just a first Corinthians five ordeal though. Uh, Matthew and, and, uh, or in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about sin and how you need to verse 15, you need to go to your brother and talk to him alone. If that doesn't work, then you need to bring one or two along with you, you know, bring two witnesses, kind of like this whole old Testament thing. Uh, And then so you can establish evidence. If he doesn't listen, take him to the church. If the church can't convince him of his sin, then he needs to be removed from the church and be treated like a a Gentile or a tax collector. That doesn't mean unloving. What would you do with a Gentile or tax collector in their day? You'd share the gospel and love them like Jesus would. But it does talk about, it is about removing people from the body who are in outward unrepentant sin. And so Lehman talks about how church discipline is an act of Christian discipleship and how it's about correcting sin and the life. Let me, 
let me let me have us like one clarification question. When you say like, removed from the church, um, you know, are you talking about you know potentially uh, church membership, or are you talking about like don't let them come into the church at all, or kind of what is this? Yeah, that's a here? great question. So it is about it's about church membership. So some people don't think that membership is even important nowadays. Membership is extremely important, and then uh, we could have an entire episode on this, which I think would be phenomenal. But to sum it up. No, yeah, I just, I just asked you so that, you know, people don't, yeah. you know, think we're saying like, oh, don't let them come to church, you know, obviously we're still saying, and as you pointed out, I just want to clarify, yeah, I'm know, gonna actually, showing them love still, yeah, yeah I'm going to get sure. to that, Lehman actually talks about it later in his primer, and so uh, it is about removing sin from the congregation, and it's saying if you have a church member who is in this sort of sin, then you would be removing them from membership. So dis- church discipline can be private where one brother confronts another, but it can turn into a public matter where a brother or sister in the gospel is removed from church membership. And so he talks about how this correction of sin is remedial, meaning it helps the individual Christian and the congregation grow in holiness. It's prophetic, meaning it shines the light of God's truth onto error and to sin. And it's proleptic, meaning it's a small picture of judgment of the final judgment that's to come. And so he goes through the different texts, Matthew 16, 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2. You know, we could keep going. And so when someone sins, we need to always be practicing discipline. If Andre sins, we should be rebuking each other in love. But when the sin is more outward, more harming to the body, then uh, an outward discipline or removal of membership is, is helpful. So he says, formal church discipline is required in cases of outward, serious, unrepentant sin. It has to be outwardly manifested, it has to be serious, and it has to be unrepentant. And so then he walks through the four steps, and then to get to Andre's question, he says, except for situations in which the unrepentant party's presence is a physical threat to the congregation, a church should welcome the person's attendance in the weekly gathering. Does that help? Yeah, for okay. sure. And then he says... That, that's- that's yeah, and then he says, though the family members of a disciplined individual should certainly continue to fulfill the biblical obligations of family life, the tenor of church members' relationships with the individual should change. And then he says, restoration to this fellowship of the church, so you want to be readmitted to membership, this should occur when there are signs of true repentance. And so his basis for all of this is that we are called to uphold the, the name and the glory of Jesus. And just to sum up one last sentence from him before I toss it off to Andre, whatever he wants to say. He goes, why should a church practice discipline? For the good of the individual, the good of non-Christians, the good of the church, and the glory of Christ. Yeah, so in, in this specific situation, we don't really know if it's um, the same person as uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, where clearly, uh, you know, he was um, involved in something which which could have caused um, a lot of uh, strife within, within the church at Corinth. But what we do know is that whoever this person may be, um, there's been that that punishment uh, period of that person. Um, it's clearly time for them to, you know, be brought back into the fold of the church. Um, Paul is saying that he's forgiven them. And he even makes this point about how, you know, it's better that they forgive this, you know, you know, this person uh, due to their shared relationship in Christ um, rather than be outwitted by Satan. Um, because, you know, Satan can use like these divisive tactics to just, you know, split up the church. Um, happy will be, um, uh, you know, argue, have divisions between them, and, you know, that um, in and of itself, while um, the point of, of, of taking someone out of church membership and removing them would be to strengthen the church um, in, you know, in purity and um, remove, the removal of that sin by keeping that person outcasted once that repentance has already occurred, and once they've been punished, Paul's saying, you know, that is Satan's tactic to, 
to deceive and to um, now instead of you know causing that increase in impurity and increase in um, togetherness, now it's causing division um, and more strife by uh, by doing that. So he's calling them to to forgive this. That's person. really good. But let me toss in one thing about forgiveness, and then I'll let you jump into the next section for us. Uh, so when it comes to forgiveness. Uh, I think a lot of us think forgiveness means everything returns to normal, but uh, I've heard a lot and uh, I've told people this when they're talking about breakups with somebody or, you know, somebody cheated on me with so-and-so or, you know, they heard about this. We should be forgiving those people who have sinned against us, but that doesn't mean we forget those things. So forgiveness, true forgiveness, means a reintegration of fellowship. That does not mean that we forget, though. So you can forgive somebody who sinned against you, cheated against you, whatever. That does not mean uh, that you forget that they did that. It just means that you've restored fellowship with them. It does not necessarily mean that you've restored the same relationship you once had with them. But forgiveness in all circumstances should be sought. Uh, Remember Jesus's words, if... uh, you know, you don't get the, I'm just paraphrasing, but we can't experience the Father's forgiveness. We don't get the Father's forgiveness if we can't forgive others. We who have been forgiven by God are to forgive others uh, in Christ and uh, around. So, Yeah, so getting into the next section here in verse 12, uh, Paul talks about when he came to Troas, I think that's how you say it, um, and he was going to preach the gospel there. He was waiting for his brother Titus, um, and what I read was that this is significant because um, Titus was supposed to be bringing, you know, that a return letter from um, the Corinthians to Paul, and because he couldn't find his brother, you know, clearly he's not getting um, that return letter, that response back, um, that snail mail. <laughs> so his spirit was not at rest um, because you know he didn't get he he didn't see you know or couldn't get any um, results or confirmation or any report back from the church who. We found um, in verse one through four that, you know, he clearly has this like deep anguish, this affliction for um, because some of the things that they're doing, some of uh, their treatments towards him. And, you know, he's deeply afflicted here again because he doesn't get that letter back. Um, But then he goes on to talk a little bit about um, how, you know, he's been led by Christ and and led by by God and by spirit. Um, So, uh, yeah, let's jump into that. Sounds good. Isn't it crazy, though? Like he shows up, you can't find him. Like think about today. You and I show up at a train station. We can't. I mean, we don't even take trains where you and I are. But like we show up at a train station. Yeah, just text. And we're like, hey, I'm just like half a mile down the road. You got find friends and all that. These dudes could have been like probably a quarter mile away. I mean, I don't know what all Paul was doing to find him, but they could have been super close by today's standards and never seen each other, which that's just crazy. Yeah, I saw something about it. there was potentially like storms or it could have been something with the seasons or there's like a bunch of potential different explanations of why he couldn't get there. But, you know, clearly, you know, they have to go by letter. They had to go by ship. And that's just <laughs> not as efficient as we have now. But clearly we see again that, you know, Paul is is, uh, you know, deeply concerned. And, and we see how much he really cares for um, his brothers and sisters uh Yeah, and I think uh, his deep care is always overflowing to thanksgiving. And so that's kind of where verse verse 14 leads. You covered the last two verses uh, awesome and awesomely. And so that's a word. Don't know. But verse 14, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in this triumphal procession. And I think this is important because 
I took a class on Roman religion and we took, or it was called Roman religion. We spent a lot of time on this Roman generals, Roman leaders, Roman rulers winning these when would win a battle. And then uh, depending on the schedule, because they would win so many, or there'd have to be like a scheduled time for it. You'd have this triumphal procession where they would go through Rome, go through the city and uh, they would basically be celebrated for their victory. And uh, oftentimes enemies who were defeated or people of shame in the battle would be uh, shown to the crowd as well. Kind of like this whole honor shame thing again that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so most people think that God saying that Christ leads us in triumphal procession means we are the victors. But actually the language is saying that we're the one of shame who's being depicted as somebody who's been conquered. However... It's saying, I mean, Paul says in Romans 5 that we were saved as enemies of God uh, in verse 10 of Romans 5. And so he sees himself and he sees us as Christians, as people who were enemies of God and who have been conquered by God, in a sense, been defeated by him. He's broken down our walls and we have now been uh, restored to him. So he is the victor. And then that also means he's this is a polemic or a criticism against Roman religion and Roman authority because no longer is the Roman ruler the guy who's in charge and who gets the victory. God is the one who gets uh, the victory. So this triumphal procession actually shows Paul as the weak one, shows us as the weak one, which again goes against this whole idea in Corinth that the greater you are, the wealthier you are, the more successful you are. Uh, that's the best. But Paul is clearly showing himself as one of shame and of weakness who's been defeated by God, but that brings glory to God and speaks to God's majesty. Yeah, and I also read a little bit about how uh, this one specific, uh, this triumphal procession that, that's being talked about here, how it really talks about uh, what you said, that it paints Paul as the one who who isn't who isn't the victor, but, you know, Paul is painting God as the one who's the victor over Paul, and, and you know, that's kind of where that's where Paul starts. Um, God was victor over him, and, and you know that's you know his his redemption story and all that. But another big part about it that I read uh, was just how uh, in Corinth there was you know the people who were coming in and you know saying things about Paul and and offering this false doctrine and things along that nature, and they were really saying you know they were painting them themselves as the ones who are triumphal, um, and Paul's really saying you know the difference between them and me is that you know him in his in his humility points um all of his successes and, and all the things that he's doing to god whereas they're trying to take all their credit and, and he's kind of like setting us up for how he's gonna uh basically uh point out some of the holes and 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 what uh these other people who he doesn't really fully address uh yet here but um some of the things that they're saying that you know he's he's gonna explain to Corinthians why these are um, some false teachings, uh, what they need to be looking out for, and and also defending himself a little bit. Oh, that's really good. I actually hadn't thought about it uh, in the way that in the way that you explained there at the beginning. That was really good. So, uh, so we have this, and then through this procession, through this defeat of us, where God restores us to Himself, He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere, and we kind of get this. I mean, perfume sounds like a weird term now to use, but I mean, basically what he's talking about, incense, fragrance, aroma, perfume, you name it, this idea of sense, this idea of smell, spreads this knowledge of him everywhere where the aroma of Christ. And so, I mean, this goes all the way back to Genesis. I mean, Noah offers a sacrifice. The aroma is pleasing to God. Aromas were central to the Levitical sacrifices. Uh, so uh, that that's very central to, to what is... Uh, New Testament theology as a fulfillment of Old Testament theology. I mean, you think of Ephesians 5, uh, verse 2, uh, Christ loved us and was a fragrant sacrifice and offering to God. And so 
Uh, as a result, we're to love others. That's a paraphrase as well. But he does talk about a fragrant offering. And so in Christ's own light, we're to be uh, a fragrance uh, pointing to Christ and pointing to God. Uh, so this whole idea of incense and aroma and of, of fragrance, again, obviously, is not so much about an actual sense of smell. It's about what is pleasing to God and what is a sacrifice to God. And, you know, more uh, going off of this, you know, whole idea of the aroma. And it's interesting because at the end here in, in, in uh, verses 16 and 17, he says, who is sufficient for these things for we are not? I think that's really interesting because, you know, he's he's not saying that, you know, himself or, or the Corinthians or anyone is, is worthy of, of having these, um, the, the aroma of Christ um, that God gives those who are saved. Um, but he does say that they're among those who are perishing. So we see this continued theme that, you know, he's calling them out for some of the sins that are going on, but, you know, he's calling them out because, you know, he's pointing out to them, uh, you know, in love that uh, they're to be different from those who are perishing around them and, and paints this like really uh, crazy picture about how there's um, like these like two fragrances or aromas that are kind of like super different. One is like the, um, the one of those who are among them who are perishing, who they're to be different from the ones um, of the world of the flesh. And he said, you know, that their fragrance is from death to death. And he's saying, um, thanks to the aroma of Christ, uh, which God gives to those who are being saved. The other fragrance is one from life to life. And I think that's just like a crazy picture that really, um, points to the severity of, uh, not like living apart from, um, the flesh and apart from the things of the world and apart from the, the people that, you know, he's, he's pointing out those who are around them who are, who are perishing, the, um, uh, the, this like just great imagery of perishing and death to death. That's the like aroma that they're breathing in um, and, and just like how they're called to be different. And I think that's like really, really crazy to think about and just like such a beautiful picture. So I have a question. Can our encouragement or exhortation to others, if we're teaching this in a Bible study, be to smell good with the gospel? I don't know, man. <laughs> I actually experienced a little bit of incense. It does have a very... Uh, distinct smell why don't you so tell you don't want to be why smelling not, like why don't death. you that's for why sure. don't you tell everybody where you smelt some incense yeah so i actually wanted to uh i have a friend who's been you know exploring a little bit with the orthodox church michael and i talked about it a little bit but i ended up tagging along on a service and they had like this little incense thing you can't see me making the <laughs> motions but it's like imagine like a uh, kind of a semi-long rod with like kind of like a bell looking thing at the end that kind of opens and closes and Basically, an incense comes out of it and has a very distinct smell, and I definitely smell like it um, even after leaving. Um, so it's distinct. It doesn't smell bad or anything. It smells um, just distinct, which you know makes me think that if I there was a distinct um, smell of death that would linger, it'd be pretty obvious. And I think it's a really beautiful picture that you know that smell that people are just gonna smell around you. It's gonna be lasting. It's gonna uh, be obvious and. You know, you don't want to smell like death. You want to smell like Christ. And I think that's a really beautiful picture because of my um, recent experiences. But I think it really helped me to visualize it. And I think it's it's very evident what Paul is trying to say here, that they're to be apart from from these people around them who are perishing. So two more questions. <laughs> are you Eastern Orthodox now, Andre? No, I found out that it's actually a long process to convert. <laughs> and I don't have any intention to convert. But uh, it was a very beautiful uh, service and just seeing a different way uh, that people try to uh, 
do things that are pleasing to Christ. Uh, it was for any for any it. Seinfeld lovers out there, fellow Seinfeld fans. Uh, it reminds me of when George wants to convert to Latvian Orthodox for a a woman, and it is a process. He has to read all these books. He ends up cheating on the test. Very funny episode. Anyways, and then question number two. You said you smelled like Christ, so I can tell people to smell good with the gospel, it sounds like. I guess so. I guess we can say that, you know, <laughs> it should be obvious. So you're reading your Bible every morning. We'll leave it at that. I know. It reminds me of, I don't know if it was uh, Charles Spurgeon saying it about John Bunyan or uh, some sort of uh, combo of, of it pastors writers uh one speaking of another said if you uh gave one like a paper cut if you cut him he would bleed the bible and so maybe that should be our fragrance if you cut us we bleed the bible you hurt us we what comes out is the scripture so yeah for sure you know just at uh last week we were talking a little bit about not on the podcast but uh, in a small group uh of mine you know about how you know we're set apart and this kind of reminded me of that too because just thinking about uh, what we talked about was that, you know, as you walk around your everyday life, it should be obvious that you're set apart. And I think, you know, this could kind of be the same thing. Um, obviously, that's not a fragrance, but the obviousness, if I don't know, another word that I'm not sure if that's a word, but um, of it should be evident to, to other people. So, yeah. Do you have anything else on, on this section before we wrap up? Nope. Thanks for keeping the uh, keep talking because I, uh, I just finished a bite of my turkey sandwich, but... Uh, so last verse, he says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. And so first thing that comes to mind is like, he's saying, we don't, you know, water down the gospel. We don't make the gospel false. We are not making it palatable, more appealing. I mean, you think of liberal theology in the early 20th century saying we need to remove uh, the bloody atonement of Jesus because it's not appealing to people. He's not actually saying that. He's saying he doesn't view preaching as some sort of, trade or job where he profits from it. That's not where his basis for his ministry is coming out of. And I think we see his heart, his heart and all that. But uh, yeah, that's all I have on this, uh, on this chapter. But I think my main takeaway is that I'm going to go tell people to smell good with the gospel. <laughs> yeah. And just to you know, wrap it up, I just want to say that, you know, Paul's really pointing to how the gospel that he is sharing with them is one that, you know, starts, you know, in his own sufferings, but also in the sufferings of Jesus on the cross uh, reminded me of that when you were talking about, you know, the paper cut and the bleeding of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. But hope you guys enjoyed this episode and uh, enjoy a thought that Michael's going to go around telling people to smell like the gospel. But have a good week, guys, and see you back next week. Oh, wait, week. one thing. We have an interview coming out this Thursday with Dr. Andrew Walker, and we hope you enjoy that conversation as well. Thanks for joining us today.